Welcome to Supergirl's Attic. I'm Cycles. And I'm Vivi. And we are recording this episode on Valentine's Day. Which tells you where the biggest love in our hearts lies. <laughs> it's true. And naturally, we are going to discuss love. <laughs> Romantic love specifically, but not exclusively, as this is the Supergirl TV show. And we have a fun episode, a silly episode ahead, and a couple ship games. And as a fun bonus, Vivi and I are going to finally reveal our favorite Supergirl ships at the end of the episode. So stay tuned. But first, as this is Supergirl's Attic, we're going to do some meta on how romantic relationships are used in Supergirl and the messages that we receive about romantic relationships. Because as we alluded to, generally, family and friends are in sort of a contrast with other depictions of what romance is supposed to be and what it's supposed to mean to people in their lives and the importance it holds. Those more familial friendship relationships are quite valued and, and often more important than romance in the way that they are treated within the story. Which, if you think about kind of Kara's major trauma and her journey of self-discovery as a character, and also the age that she was and the way that she is very bicultural in like a way that Clark isn't, for example, mm. makes a lot of sense because the thing that she is hurting from and feels like she's lost is her family and her friends. Like, she wasn't at an age where, like, you know, she didn't lose, like, a spouse, like Jean, for example. Mm. And she also wasn't a baby who then grew up completely in American culture with all of its values about mm -hmm. romance. So she sits in this kind of unique, neat place as far as that's concerned. Yeah. I mean, if you look at Superman, for instance, within the show, he has that moment with Kara where he's like, oh, I wouldn't have been able to sacrifice Lois to save the world in the same way that you were. And even in the Superman and Lois TV show that is coming out, there is a bit where Lois is like, right now, this family needs you more than, you know, the rest of the world. <laughs> so there's a definitely seems to be a different kind of perspective between these two super characters. And then also, if you compare Kara to the other heroes, such as Barry, who is obviously <laughs> yeah. the paragon of love, <laughs> which is just fun to see them interact because he's usually like kind of giving her <laughs> romantic advice. It is. It's always very cute. Yeah. Or there's like a romantic context, like the musical episode, which was very romance. The one with the music meister. Yeah. Yeah. And then with James in, in season one, Barry, you know, was like, sometimes you don't want to wait. <laughs> And be oh, patient. Yeah. yeah. And also in season three, when Kara was feeling not so great about her potential for love and Barry was like, I already convinced Oliver that he needs to have love in his life. Now I have to talk to you about it. Oh, right. So that's yeah. it. So makes sense that he is the paragon of love, especially because of how important his relationship with Iris in that show is. It's like the focal point in many ways. Mm -hmm. But with Kara, you know, she's the paragon of hope because that is her message and, and her backstory, as you were talking about, with relation to the kind of trauma that she experienced and the kind of childhood life and values and the different culture that she comes from. And, you know, we saw Kara make that value-driven decision to send Manal away, a decision that could possibly result in his death because he's just being sent in a little pod out into the blackness of space, as she says. And she chooses that over keeping him and making the world suffer from the Daxamite invasion. 
And the lesson that she learns through her arc isn't like, oh, she should have chosen Mano. Like, love is more important, which can be a lesson that one receives in general in sort of like mythical, very idealistic storytelling, where it's like, oh, and at the end of the day, you should value love above all practicality. <laughs> so you mean American media culture generally? <laughs> <laughs> Fair, yes. But the lesson here is that th that was the right choice for Kara. It's not that she should have done something differently, but she should still try to have that happiness in terms of romance and in terms of just having like a, a normal life, as we'll talk about in more depth later with Kara. And we also see this value through the show in Monel's arc, where he goes from in season two only really caring about heroics for Kara's sake and like trying to impress her. And then it turns into something where like he wants to be someone that is worthy of Kara's love, but it's still very Kara centric. And even up until the end of season two, because he's like, oh, why do you have to be the one who fights Raya as she's trying to invade? Can it be someone else? Like, why is the person I love have to be the one in danger? And Kara's like, I can't handle you right now. She's just like, <laughs> she's like, no. <laughs> she's like, this is the thing that you're supposed to have learned through our interactions. But then ultimately, you know, Manel, apart from Kara, which is kind of an important part, mm -hmm. <laughs> begins to actually to care for people in a, in a deeper way and and be motivated by that. Mm. And to value that over personal connections. And he even struggled with it in season three, but he comes into it like with some newfound wisdom from the future. <laughs> and ultimately, the sort of wrap up of his arc is when he decides to leave Kara and choose to go to save the future instead yeah. and make that value driven decision, a demonstration that he has actually <laughs> changed and grown throughout the years. So we always joke that I, I just mind wiped myself <laughs> regarding season two because it was not my favorite. Um, mm -hmm. But I was I'm rewatching this series right now and I just finished all of season two. And in rewatching it, it's interesting to see that the building blocks for this evolution were there. Mm -hmm. They were not. And we'll talk about this a little bit in a minute. They were not articulated super well always. Mm -hmm. But one of the nice details that I liked because it wasn't overt was was the fact that you do see that Monel in a different way than Kara, but with a similar interest, actually really gets to know people around him and takes an interest in them. Like you always see these casual little moments where he knows the names of all these little side characters that mm. nobody else has heard of. Mm -hmm. Kara makes a comment about the one alien at the bar and I was like, oh yeah, he's awesome. He's super cool. <laughs> and the through line on it just, it wasn't done as clearly as it could have been to see mm -hmm. how that connected to kind of his other shift as a person until you get into that latter part of season three and you see that, you know, he helps the little boy who's mm -hmm. sick yeah, and that kind of thing. And that gets to the root of what Supergirl as a show thinks heroism is. Mm. Connecting to people. <laughs> Connecting to people, caring about them, caring for them, knowing people's names. And that's a big part of like what makes Cara Danvers a hero mm. and that sort of connection. Yeah, the idea that, that she sees people for mm -hmm. who they are, like with the cult where she says, oh, I remember all of these people that I've saved and that kind of thing. Yeah. And that's also something that like the showrunner Robert Rovner was talking about with relation to actually the other heroes that I think he sort of slipped because he was like, that's what makes Kara the most heroic. Oh, I mean, well, they're all heroic, but <laughs> <laughs> but it was about the fact that she would always choose to, to make like those self-sacrifices. And that is very tied to this idea of the hero and, you know, choosing 
not just like someone you love personally, but choosing to help everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And generally, in another way that the show can demonstrate, not always consistently, but often demonstrates the value of other kinds of relationships that are not romantic is how they prioritize like the Danvers sisters or the sort of found family messages and the friendships within the show. Yeah, which I appreciate a lot because of the fact that the show also really centers, again, not always consistently, but it is a through line throughout the series, the importance of promoting good mental health and and well-being for the Mm -hmm. characters. And the idea that any one relationship, and specifically romantic relationships, should be kind of the be-all and end-all of your life is just endemic to Western culture. And it's not necessarily healthy Mm. when you're putting all of your expectations and dumping all of your emotional needs onto one other person with this idea that they will be like the perfect one who magically (laughs) understands you. And this show really, really does a nice job of saying, no, you need a community of people to get through life. Like Mm -hmm. you, you don't just rely on one person. Yeah. And also there's this other kind of underlying importance of, of knowing yourself and what you stand for and understanding how that fits in, in the way people perceive you and the way that you connect to other people in the world. And by and large, the show doesn't cut a lot of characters slack on dealing with their own baggage mm. in a way that you might see in a more stereotypical kind of romance focused genre. Yeah, yeah. Well, because the idea is that love is supposed to be the end all be all. Like it is the most important thing, despite any kind of baggage that shows up in your relationship. Well, but the thing is, like, I I think the show's overall message is still that love is the most important thing, but not just that one kind of love. Yeah. And that's well, it's yeah. the sort of the, <laughs> you know, if we talk about the different sort of philosophical types of love, we yeah. have, <laughs> you know, friendship love is important and yeah. romantic and also like being connected to your group. And and in this case with Supergirl, the group is Earth. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, and and that's I forget exactly where I remember reading this, you know, when I was like in my like late teens. Mm -hmm. But there's also this idea of can you love the whole world? Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that's such an extraordinary thing that no, most people can't. But you need people who think that way Mm -hmm. in order to have a functioning society. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and so it was nice in Crisis to see Kara be like number one paragon. Mm. Yeah. Because she does have that sense of love and compassion, both for those people very close to her, but also for like literally every stranger <laughs> that <laughs> yeah, she I ever mean, meets. Like. You see all the different characters are, are fueled by their different relationships and, and wanting to, to save people's lives like Barry and Iris are very fueled by like coming home to each other. Mm-hmm. And then we have Sarah who was trying to save Oliver the whole time. And even Kate was very like concerned for Supergirl. And then you had Jean who just meditated a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the, but then Kara was like, we how do we save the, the this whole universe whole world that has been, you know? And she was like so ready and like too ready <laughs> to be like all right, well, we have to bring them back. And if I go crazy, it's whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny because in season two, romance becomes the focal point of the season. And it's interesting because in some ways it ultimately reinforces the show's argument of the position that romance has in our lives. Because in season two, the show itself makes that priority that these romantic relationships are 
super important and like believes it and you can tell it through the writing and also the characters do <laughs> and things do not go well for them <laughs> no and it's funny because that's something that's not exclusive to supergirl this struggle with both season twos and with prioritizing romance within a second season mm-hmm. one of the tricky things with a season two of any show is like that's the first time they've got data about the things people paid attention to in season one. And so you get all these notes that are like, people think they love this. And it's like, yeah, you love this when it's in a certain quantity, but not when it becomes all encompassing because then you lose the other things that were bringing people in in the first place. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, too, that romance is such an easy way to create new challenges for characters, a way to Mm -hmm. bring in new characters and experiment with character dynamics, that it's a quick solution as far as storytelling. But if you don't think about how it fits into the tone and the focus of what you've already created, it can go wrong real fast (laughs) and lose people's interest. Well, in terms of like the bones of season two and the, the structure and the themes that they present, it is interesting to bring up these new romantic relationships to challenge the sister bond (laughs) because they just sort of dealt with some of their own issues between each other in season one and with Jean. Yeah. And then you sort of put these obstacles or challenges or or like shift the ground underneath them a little bit with these other growth opportunities let's yeah. call it Gro- yeah. growth opportunities and and with car we see that she you know has these abandonment issues that crop up because alex starts spending more time with maggie which is an interesting thing to deal with mm. and on the other hand it also really pushes Kara to improve the the way she responds to alex as a support system and to reevaluate kind of the give and take that had always been present in their relationship in a way that ultimately strengthens it Mm -hmm. as we see in season three and moving forward. So, I mean, that part of it where they use the romance stuff to enhance other aspects of the characters is great, but it was just not consistent (laughs) at all. Well, like, let's take, for instance, when Kara discusses her abandonment issues, like they sort of finally confront it in the Martian Chronicles Mm -hmm. episode 11, her Earth birthday. Yeah, and the first time they talk about it, it's not Alex. It's a white Martian <laughs> pretending to be yeah, Alex. Which which would have been okay because they did ultimately like mm-hmm. bring it back at the end of the episode and have one of those like sort of wrap up falling action like sister beats that are very integral to the show. Mm-hmm. Like the couch scenes, for instance. But this time it was in the kitchen. Um, and Alex is like, okay, so I, something's wrong. <laughs> and I can tell. And Kara voices the fact that she fears that Alex is like drifting away from her and Alex reassures her that, no, I'm not going anywhere. And that's great. <laughs> but then what they do, and I think it's it's more clumsy <laughs> than it is necessarily a true value. Yeah. Is then Alex is like, but there's something deeper and more important to you happening right now that you're trying to cover up, which is you have feelings for Monel. Which feels like those two things are like not weaker yeah. <laughs> of a of a challenge for Car. It's like the core abandonment issue, and then there's like I like this guy, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, and also too, it's it's weird coming on the heels of like Alex was captured. Speaking of the kidnapping theme that occurs, Alex was <laughs> captured by this white Martian and went through this whole like hot mess of an ordeal. And then they had to kill the white Martians, and like Jean could have gotten hurt, and there's all this stuff going on, and. This is really a conversation that comes back to some of the things from like the Red Kryptonite episode in season one of like, we need to talk more Mm -hmm. about the things that are not always great 
in our dynamic. And then Alex is like, and you know what's bothering you more than that? The fact that you have a crush on a boy. And it's like, it's just so tonally jarring. Like, hmm. it's it's not great. And then when, obviously with Alex, we have this great storyline where she realizes that she is gay and she realizes in hand with that that she has not been sort of queuing into her own feelings and Kara does as well as like oh so you have not been the priority and the focus in our dynamic because of all the everything (laughs) but then when things sort of shift more into that space where like Alex is hanging out more with Maggie well I remember at the time when when season two was airing there were a lot of people who were really critical of the fact that maybe Alex was making plans that did not prioritize Kara Mm -hmm. in the same way that she might have before and having to explain like, no, this is a pretty normal thing that you (laughs) go through with your siblings when you transition into adulthood because your Mm -hmm. siblings are the people that you spend the highest percentage of your life around. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're close as a kid, your sibling, you know, dating someone else or getting married, it can throw you off a lot because it changes a lot of things like their time isn't just for you. And it's okay, You know, that's a thing that you have to figure out. And I liked that they did that as a story Mm -hmm. because it is such a kind of normal facet of becoming a mature adult. Mm -hmm. But then it sort of undercuts itself because of Mm -hmm. how far in the direction of focus it goes with those romantic relationships. And yeah, not having like narrative conclusions to things like the Jeremiah conflict was sort of. Maybe subtextual, like... <laughs> yeah, I it did get to the point where in kind of in the middle of season two, it felt like they just cheated a lot by using all of the, the character work they did in season one to make us assume that the characters were in certain emotional places like Kara and Alex as far as the sisterhood relationship without mm-hmm. doing the work of showing it on screen. Like they right. they had, you know, the scene with the, the spaceship in 2.15 where they play like the same music that you hear whenever Kara thinks about like losing her whole planet. Mm-hmm. But then they never have like a closing like, OK, we're not mad at each other anymore. Mm-hmm. And also, how are you? Because your dad turned out to be working with like a weird criminal organization. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was none of that. And then, you know, also with Kara in terms of like her just having a personal journey apart from a romantic relationship, which is still something that, you know, people are conscious of, like taking too much time in a female hero or female protagonist's narrative. And in this case, there was this great like reporting storyline that sort of Mm. took a back seat. Yeah. Well, and then to kind of circle back around to the shift and the challenges that we were given to the sister dynamic between Alex and Cara, and then also just the bigger family dynamic of them with Jean and then James and Wynne. Number one, they gave like every character a love interest, which was just like too many. Um, <laughs> well, it also put them in a great position where like hilariously, Kara was the only one who didn't have anyone at the end of season two. Uh, James and by hilarious, didn't either. Yeah, but they were setting up Lena. It was fine. <laughs> That's true. That's a good point. I think some of some of my issue with it was that in trying to set up all these romantic relationships, The show ended up undercutting some of its own messaging as far as specifically how women interact with each other, which was such a strong Mm. theme of the first season. And specifically in season one, you had the the dynamic between like Cara, James and Lucy that could have gone very stereotypically like Mm -hmm. love triangle-y and been very catty and contentious. And the show really intentionally subverted that and, Mm -hmm. and 
just went right around it by having Kara and Lucy just really respect each other. Well, they also solved it narratively. They presented it sort of as a conflict where, like, Lucy didn't like Supergirl. <laughs> and yeah. then they had them come to a place where they respected each other and, like, were working together. And that was sort of a more directed criticism of the mm. the female conflict. Well, speaking of not liking Supergirl and then resolving a conflict... Um... <laughs> The Alex episode in the end of season two, the whole thing was set up as this kind of uncomfortable conflict between Maggie and Kara about kind of where they fit in Alex's life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could see that coming throughout the whole season. Like the groundwork for that was there. But they again, like other things with the romance versus the non-romantic relationships in season two, they shortcut mm -hmm. And they skipped doing the work of making the characters come around to a place where they understand and respect each other. Yeah. And I don't think they ever fully succeeded at reaching that point. Yeah. Like, I liked that it kind of explored this idea of how do you decide who's important when someone's life is in a crisis? Mm -hmm. But, like, it made sense from a character point of view that Maggie would feel the way that she did. But to suggest that someone that you've been dating for six months is the same as, like, their sibling who, yeah. who's known them their entire life yeah. is like a weird skewed priority like yeah well specifically the scene was when maggie and Alcar were arguing about what decision to make you know in terms of saving alex's life mm -hmm. which is, is actually something that comes up in a lot of families when somebody's you know like mm -hmm. in an accident or what have you yeah and Kara says I'm her sister. And Maggie says, and you think that trumps me? And, and I'm like, the yes, audience is like, yeah, she that does. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a valid, it, it goes back to this idea of what you said. It feels like a shortcut. Like, it feels like we're 10 years into this <laughs> yeah. to where they're arguing about this thing or like even like five years, you know, and not like a few months. Yeah. And then speaking of like looking back at prior seasons of the show and kind of where it lost its focus and its through line and then where it might have regained it and how that all has played into the value that it places on different kinds of relationships, romantic and otherwise. Mm -hmm. When we were looking to say, like, because we've done so much talk about different mentor dynamics in the show and role models and how characters look up to each other and, and whatnot, we could not think of a single character that was in a healthy, committed, long-term relationship. Mm-hmm. At all, at any point, yeah. like either every everybody has like one parent that's dead or one parent who's a sociopath or <laughs> both. Um. Yeah, yeah. In terms of like like anyone for the, the characters to like look up to as opposed to like Kelly and Alex are in a relationship right now. You know, Kat had her exes and, you know, obviously Jean's wife isn't here anymore. Yeah. And then if you think about other characters, parents, you know, James and Kelly, their their father died when they were fairly young. Wynn had the whole thing where his dad went to prison and his mom left and he ended up in foster mm -hmm. care. Lena's parents are a hot mess. Yeah, the, the father's not alive anymore. And speaking of parents who are not alive anymore, we had we had <laughs> briefly a nice relationship with Nia's parents and then yes. her mom died. And, you know, Brainy had of clearly not great parents. Mm -hmm. And also look at Monel and, you know. Yeah. His mom stabbed his dad for expressing kind emotion. So there's really nothing that is a demonstration right. of like a solid, successful yeah. 
dynamic. Which I guess it makes it make sense that our main characters have some trouble with like, we'll talk about this more, but it's it's sort of the last thing for them to, to master is I suppose the way that Alex would think of it is like adult <laughs> skills. Yeah. Yeah. And so we've talked a lot about how the show subverts expectations for how important romantic relationships are supposed to be and how sometimes when they do make it very important in the storyline, the messages aren't actually great in the way it's handled. But the show also does have sort of a slow burn, if you will, (laughs) relationship with romantic relationships, wherein we do get messages that they can fill like important emotional needs Mm -hmm. and and that that is something that the characters look for and and want in their lives, many of them. The importance that romantic relationships have for the characters are frequently in this framing of like having a normal life and and the ways that the characters feel like they don't and the ways that they wish that they did. Obviously with Kara, this is a big theme (laughs) we talk about all the time where she wants to have a normal life and she wants to have stuff that she feels like she doesn't get to have. She has kind of a very... And this term from the speech she gave to Jean at the end of season one, when she was like, I don't get to have like a human boyfriend and a white picket fence. Like, that's not going to. Yeah. Like the whole little like happy ending. Yeah. The sort of like the American dream, which I think is appropriate for like the discussion that we're having, the concept of it being an American dream. Mm. And Kara as that kind of bicultural character who feels very stuck between mm. wanting both yeah. And she doesn't get to have the normal life where she, like, at her age would be a spinster, apparently, on Krypton. Like, she doesn't get to have that life where she's with somebody already in her head and has, like, a little family, like, her friend who she met on Argo again, who had, like, her gazebo and and her family and her, her priorities there. Her, her trivial problems. <laughs> well, she doesn't get to have that thing that she thinks she was supposed to have on Krypton. Well, and the thing that she would call normalcy. She doesn't get to have these like dumb everyday concerns. Mm. Yeah. But and she doesn't have that in the context of Krypton and she doesn't have it in the context of Earth mm. because of all the things that come with being an alien and being a superhero. And also in terms of like the trauma that she experienced and, and the loss there, apart from just culturally. And, and you know, the, this idea that like close relationships after trauma, even if the trauma itself isn't like interpersonal or like it doesn't involve like abuse or neglect, close relationships can be tough because of the, the sort of narratives that you build up based on and, and the fears and the echoes of that trauma and the way that they show up in your relationships. And with Kara, we see you know, she all the way back in season one with James and, and in the red faced episode with everybody's favorite heat vision scene, Kara thought that she was mad about like Lucy and James them being together mm, because yeah. she wanted to be with him. But the anger behind the anger, as Kat imparts upon Kara, was that Kara will never have someone who knows everything about her, which is something that she associates like, with that normalcy. She won't have that kind of intimacy. Like That's what she fears, that she'll never have someone who like she can just be herself with in the same way that she sees James and Lucy being like so open and knowing each other so well. And, you know, she goes deeper with it where the reason that she'll never have that is because her normal life ended the second that her parents put her on that ship. And this is an idea that she has throughout the series and, and things add to it or combat it. With Wynn, he adds to it in season one when he catches James and Kara hugging. <laughs> and he says, you're never going to have that normal boy meets girl. OK, the superhero never gets the guy. And there's a sort of pop culture framing for romance here where 
we know from storytelling in this culture that people who are in this position, this superhero position, don't get to have like a happy ending or like a like a normal everyday life where they're open with somebody. So Kara already has this sort of narrative a story about herself that she lost everything and she survived the destruction of her planet so that she can protect others. And we see this show up in like cultural things like with her prayers to to the god Rao. So then this sort of sad superhero kind of above everyone else, separate from them narrative ties in very neatly <laughs> and reinforces mm. that idea. And it makes sense in terms of like Kara adjusting to American Earth culture, also having been unmoored from her expected normal life. It, it makes sense that she would heavily rely on these like sort of external indicators of her progress, like yeah. <laughs> with the story of like a superhero, like whether or not it aligns with that. But then also like Alex's advice about stuff and, and relying on her a lot for things and like the dating service from the pilot episode that oh, she was where using. she uses that like match app or whatever yeah <laughs> yeah and has like a terrible date so she's putting her faith in this like external thing to try to make that happen for her and then also like when she latches on to wins sort of wisdom about like it'll feel like a wapow when you feel something <laughs> like a comic book punch in the face <laughs> yes <laughs> Exactly. And Kara loves that. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> she loves punching. That's true. Yeah. So she starts forming this other kind of narrative and like pathway that her life could go on and in some ways sees this path that she is not following. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. And then in season two, things kind of shift because immediately from the time the Monel's pod lands, she's like, oh, it's a sign of something connected to Krypton. And while she is conflicted because she's inherited all of these prejudices about Daxamites and, and whatnot, she's also very conscious of the fact that this is something that is familiar in many ways that she's lost and that she can gain back. Mm. And it's not explained well explicitly throughout season two, but there's this resonance for her with the fact that Monel is familiar with the same cultural touchstones as her. You have that early thing where he asks her about dancing and talking about that. And then they talk about how they've traveled to some of the same places. And he knows stuff intuitively about her that is so fundamental to her being that no one else does at all, including yeah. Clark, because he was not raised on Krypton. Yeah. There's a kind of experiential learning element that will never be possible for the human <laughs> yeah. that she does get with Monel. It kind of goes against that narrative that she had about her life where so she leaves Krypton, she loses everyone, that she comes to Earth because she has to protect people and she has to value protecting Earth above having relationships. Having someone come from near Krypton and then be like, Hi, I can offer you things that you didn't think that you would be able to get. It challenges this belief. Oh, I'm going to be alone forever. But then at the end of season two and, you know, going into season three, when she loses Monel, it reinforces it in a big way because she was like attentive, like, oh, maybe this will be OK. And then like, oh, no, just kidding. That was a terrible idea. <laughs> you can sort of compare it to when Alex was like, I like Maggie and then got rejected by Maggie <laughs> and was like, I should never have said anything, you know. Or like, also when Alex freaks out because something happens to Kara while she's like enjoying dating mm. Maggie and then she's like, I can't be happy because something bad will always happen and ruin it. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's it's really similar in their own unique psychological profile ways. 
So Kara has this confirmation that Supergirl, that responsibility means that she doesn't get to have romantic love or, or normal happiness generally and confirms that story of her life the way that even like Wynne told it. Her superhero doesn't get the guy. But then again, we have a challenge. <laughs> a challenge arises to this narrative where Kara's mother survives. And that's a big challenge in a lot of ways for mm. the way that Kara sees the world. But it goes against the narrative that she doesn't get to have stuff like that because the original thing that she lost has been sort of gifted to her again in a pretty significant way. Mm. And within that, when Kara finally realizes that Alora is alive and gets to interact with her, Alora tells Kara a lot of the things that she's always hoped to hear the reassurances mm-hmm. that that she needed as a particularly as a younger adolescent about herself and the way she's adapted to living on earth mm-hmm. she expressed a lot of that to cat back in season 1 when she was giving her advice about what to say to adam she's like i would want to know that you know my mom cared about my happiness and that she was mm-hmm. proud of me and like glad of that i made decisions that i did and and that kind of thing yeah because the happiness thing is a big doubt for her <laughs> whether or not her mom would have wanted that you know yeah well because the focus was so much on duty and less about Mm -hmm. Kara's individual well-being especially as we've talked about knowing Krypton was a more collectivistic society than American culture and I actually read the transcript again for the opening scene for the whole show where Mm. (laughs) when Alora is sending Kara away and it is really explicit where it's like you're going to earth to protect Kal-El and there you will be extraordinary. <laughs> I remembered it more subtextually than it was actually quite explicit where there is this message that she is getting. This is why you're surviving and why you're going there. So then Kara gets there. And after having lost her whole family, you know, there's a resistance like we heard her talk about with Eliza, where it took her a while to let Eliza comfort her. And then Eliza was like, your mother would have wanted you to have someone like that. And that is something that got through to her and was important for her to hear. So then, like you said, when Allura comes back and is like, this is great. And I'm happy that you have a family that loves you. And and this is what I would have hoped for you. That builds up this narrative that Kara can have where like, oh, I get to do both. I get to (laughs) be a protector and have happiness. (laughs) And then that informs her relationship with Eliza and and moving forward where she starts referring to her as her mom. Also, as you've pointed out, where like Allure is alive, so it doesn't feel as much like a replacement (laughs) because she exists somewhere in the world. It's hard to replace someone who's kind of around. So then Kara, she begins to be in a better place. And it's funny because in season four, she doesn't have any kind of romantic relationship or storyline, which is quite different than, you know, most television shows <laughs> especially tv like cw type or like geared yeah. toward a certain group of people well and that's also where i think some of the struggle had come in in season two because it switched networks and season two really felt like they had a pressure to cw the show mm-hmm. and it pushed it in a bunch of directions that were very different tonally than season one yeah well in fairness tri- they subverted it but they had like a love triangle in season one they had a couple because they had the james Wincara and then lucy james cara and like low-key and then the weird Matt, max thing with alex and but Kat. also cat yeah <laughs> yeah but go back to cara and her her journey 
with regard to romantic love and, and letting herself want it <laughs> and because it mm-hmm. is something that like she wants. <laughs> yeah. We eventually come to William. And for Kara, she's had this other conflict happening in her friendship, a very important friendship to her with Lena. And that very much informs the way that she is interacting with William because of the narrative that she has now, which is reinforced in a different sort of way where it's still like, oh, I'm a superhero, so I don't get to have happy relationships. But it's about the, who she is and how that well the idea of like how does she live authentically Mm. while being able to create these connections to people and this idea that like maybe there's no way for her to do that (laughs) Mm. because it went so poorly with lena like there was a conflict of like i can't tell her or she'll be in danger i can't tell her or she'll be mad at me then i did tell her and then she is mad at me and now everything's terrible so just sort of not knowing how to be authentically herself in any of these scenarios and she literally goes through scenarios in the 100th episode so Kara like doesn't get to have a normal life with friends and that then bleeds over into this romantic interest that she has in William and that's where we are now with especially after things maybe are smoothing over with Lena whether or not Kara will be like okay so this secret doesn't have to destroy this romantic Mm. connection before it begins I can try to have that happiness And one thing I would really like to see further is actually Kara and Nia talking a little bit more as Mm. far as that kind of stuff is concerned, because Nia has to go through a lot of those same struggles of how to disclose certain parts of her identity and when and how to deal with if there's a rejection or the awkwardness or any of that. Mm -hmm. And as far as like their mentor mentee kind of friendship, that's a place where you have that room on both sides for growth and for Mm -hmm. a give and take that I think Nia would offer a really nice perspective to kind of put Kara's big internal weight to lift it a little bit because other people go through this problem too. Like it's not just her. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, there is like, it's quite interesting in terms of like allegory. There's a lot in common with Kara as an alien and storytelling about a trans person and, and those relationships and the secrets versus like when to come out and related to like a person's body Mm -hmm. and related to like a threat of violence because of a fear of aspect and also being part of a community against which there is a lot of prejudice Mm -hmm. and stereotypes like they make that very explicit in season one with leslie willis and her nasty comments about you know yeah what does she even look like down there it's very Mm -hmm. you know it's the same kind of thing that you know nicole will shut down on her twitter like um (laughs) yeah and and nia has had a few moments that have been quite nice where she's this like young inspirational person with a lot of wisdom in some ways yeah (laughs) and in the same way that nicole obviously is in her actual life where she'll have like moments with James or even with Kara or Jean Jean and impart something in a very heroic way the same way that Kara would Mm -hmm. with the characters that are like in mentorship roles for her she has a lot to share she has a lot to offer to the fam to the fam she brings some unique perspectives to the table (laughs) yes well and also too because of the fact that she bridges that gap between the subtextual coming out narratives and the explicit ones because she is both an alien and a member of the queer community Mm -hmm. yeah in the same way that she bridges the gap as an alien and a human yeah we love to see it we love it (laughs) we love a bridge (laughs) (laughs) nia supports everyone because she's the bridge there it is wow So we've walked through Kara's narrative in the show and internally in terms of her romantic relationships and her perception of romantic relationships and the kind of journey that she has gone on 
and is still going on from a place of trauma to a place where she's willing to try to have this specific type of relationship. Jean is a character who has gone on a quite similar but unique path where he started from a place of quite severe trauma where he lost his whole family in a genocide, you know, as an adult. And he has had to go on this journey of like letting, in the same way that Kara has with like Eliza and in some ways even Alex initially, like letting other people feel emotional needs in the way that someone that he has lost once filled, such as with his daughters and his wife. And Jean opening up to having generally connections has started with Alex and Kara and, and that position that he was put in where he is this protective figure for them by the behest of Jeremiah. And he begins to look after them. And then over quite a few years, many, he actually interacts with them and then actually builds a relationship with them. And then those relationships going successfully in a way opens him up to starting to have other friendships and and ultimately little romantic connections here and there, like in season one with Senator Crane. Yeah, which was also kind of fun because Jean didn't quite realize that she was flirty with him in much the same way that Kara doesn't always notice when when humans are <laughs> kind of hitting on her yeah it's also nice in a way of saying that it's not literally like Kara doesn't know what she's looking for but that what Kara is expecting is very different than what maybe is happening um <laughs> that's fair yeah uh but Kara has this like great face that she makes like she <laughs> oh yeah she makes this hilarious face to Alex it's like hey look look what's look. happening <laughs> oh my god they're flirting father and yeah. that's also <laughs> it reminds me of the scene in season four actually oh when yeah a woman comes in for his help as a sort of detective and the car is just walking out and like in the background she's like grinning ear to ear <laughs> because this like attractive woman has come into his office to talk to him and that's actually nice seeing that sort of enthusiastic fun encouragement from Kara because that's mm -hmm. an area where like Alex is on the same level of Jean usually of not with always romantic stuff like she gets excited but where they're sort of chill yeah they're both a little bit more stoic mm -hmm. and then Kara's like isn't this great fly and she's kind of that energy and that energy has helped Jean open up over the years to have a little bit more fun yeah <laughs> in some ways and and her doing that in the context of romance has been nice to watch yes and also similarly where Alex casually mentions that she's been on a date and then Cara gets all excited and Alex is like do not start <laughs> planning my wedding in your head <laughs> <laughs> exactly we love that energy and that journey yes you everyone needs that friend mm-hmm Alex also plays a role mm. with Jean and his romantic like life. Yes. And getting him to open up sort of in a different way with relation to Megan. Mm. Well, it, one of my favorite things actually about that dynamic is that her first interaction with any of the core characters in the show is with Alex. It's not with Jean. And mm -hmm. she immediately wants to help her and creates this very interesting dynamic for them that would have been nice to see more of where Alex recognizes that they both care about Jean and she uses that as kind of like Nia as a bridge. Like Alex <laughs> is this bridge that kind of forces Jean to make that connection and then mm -hmm. is in a way where Jean often will push her on her line of thinking. And if she's maybe not making the best choices, she really reciprocates that and kind of calls him out on how he's acting towards McGon and whether or not it aligns with really what he feels or what his values are. 
and pushes them to actually sort their feelings out, which is nice. Mm, yeah. She also propels like Megan to help John when he's dying. Mm-hmm. It's just there's a lot of really cool little exchanges because you have that initial thing where Alex is really kind of desperate looking for help and clues with something early in season two. And Megan immediately is like, I'll help you. And then Alex goes to her and is like, my father is dying. (laughs) Not literally, but, you know. And then one of the other things that is more obvious when you watch season two as a unit instead of when everyone was watching it live kind of piecemeal because there were so many breaks Mm. was that every character who's in a romantic relationship in season two finds out that their partner was lying about something really important um, and integral to who they are as a person. And... Alex is really the one who kind of forces Jean to recognize maybe that his reactions are are not maybe coming from the most rational place, especially because she's like, if you want to be mad at someone, be mad at me because I'm the one who told her to do this so you wouldn't die. <laughs> like, um. yeah. Well, you know, and it's interesting, like just before Jean ultimately forgives Magan, he has to literally confront you know, this traumatic Mm -hmm. experience of the genocide where he goes into her mind to help save her. And, you know, to going back to this idea of Jean, the thing that scares him about opening up in general is the loss that he had and and a combination of wanting to not replace them and then also fearing that it'll happen again. So he has to literally confront going back to Mars in this place while genocide in the mind realm is happening. And he does that with Alex and Kara's support. Like they're literally standing right there. Oh, yeah. He asks them to stay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice flip of the scene from season one where Alex explains what happened to Astra. And then Mm. Kara and Jean both kind of like stand there supportively. Yeah. And McGon ends up leaving to kind of a similar way as Manal does in season three. We're like, I have to do this because this is important to my values to like make a positive mark on the cosmos. <laughs> so she leaves to go to Mars to help the rebellion. And then like in the same way that Kara got Alora back, Jean gets his parent back yes. in Marin. And Magan is sort of a gateway there. <laughs> but they rekindle their connection in season five. After Jean has gone through a lot of character progression on a personal level and figuring out who he is, Mm. Jean's like, I am Jean Jones. (laughs) (laughs) And like with Jean, we see most of the characters actually sort of first get comfortable with parts of themselves and like who they are and, you know, the relationships like friendships and family relationships. Those elements tend to be solid with these characters before they pursue sort of successful relationships or or relationships that go a little bit more smoothly than, say, in season two. Which brings us to Alex, who is very much a character who needs, like, just as a person to be comfortable with herself to not manifest her, like, anxieties in her relationship or not prioritizing the partner in the relationship above all the things that she cares about and being Mm. sure of her own values. Yeah. And Alex, as we know, like she had this great coming out arc and tying back into that, this idea of like having a normal life like Kara and like Jean's in a way. Alex wanted to have not just a normal life, but like a perfect life where, yeah, <laughs> where she like stereotypical idea of a life as an adult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in terms of like her achievement, like she's she has to like win at it and do it successfully. Like it's on her as opposed to like like external factors and and being upset that like that's not working out. It's about 
it's on her <laughs> to manifest those things. Yeah. In that way that we kind of talked about where she doesn't actually necessarily believe she has control over things, but she feels like she should. Mm. And that is what creates that tension. Yeah. And it's interesting, Alex's arc of coming out in season two, because we learned that she thought that she just wasn't into romantic relationships at all. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And basically, I guess she thought she was like aromantic or like asexual. Which was an interesting choice for the show to take, because that's not something you'd normally hear characters say. Yeah. It's interesting because she has this very like heteronormative reaction where like, mm. oh, I don't like guys. So therefore, I just guess I don't like anybody because the default is liking guys. Mm-hmm. So she has to come the long way around toward that discovery. And that ties into Alex's journey in general. And like the point of her character, the central theme is like accepting herself fully and knowing herself. And we see this manifest in all her different relationships in terms of making room for her feelings, like with Kara mm. and like we see with Maggie and her personal goals, like we see with her career at the DEO. Mm-hmm. And tying back to this idea of like needing also other kinds of relationships in your life, apart from romantic relationships and the Supergirl characters needing them to be solid before feeling comfortable pursuing romantic endeavors. We have Alex and wanting Eliza's support. Mm. Yeah. Kind of like for a scary, like coming out situation, the way that Kara needed Alex's support to come out as Supergirl. In the sense that like in their head, it's scary or like like self-doubt and needing other people to mm, to like believe in and validate. Yeah. yeah. And Eliza, luckily, <laughs> is extremely supportive of Alex coming out and not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's not surprised. And she says that she always knew that Alex would be exceptional, which goes against what Alex was trying to do, which was have a perfect, normal life Mm. and thinking that that was what Eliza wanted for her. Yeah. And that one is an interesting turn of phrase just because so many of us, I think, associate exceptional with the meaning of being like the best or better than other people and not the way it's most frequently meant, which is just as a general term for something that is different in the sense of Mm -hmm. being, you know, against the norm, atypical. Mm -hmm. But does still have that like positive connotation. Yeah, it does have a positive connotation. And that's the way that Eliza means it in that scene. And Mm -hmm. you can tell that because before she she says that about Alex, she's like, look at my life. Look at your sister. Like, you know, pointing out none of us are normal. (laughs) Like none (laughs) of our lives have followed a traditional path. Why would I have ever wanted, you know, to force you to do that? Mm. And it's also interesting in a contrast of Eliza saying that she could see Alex being exceptional versus Kara with Allura saying you will be extraordinary, which very mm. much is that it's definitely relative pressure. <laughs> like, um. <laughs> Absolutely. And which is why, you know, Eliza is a great parent for Cara to have in her life and reinforcing this idea like you need different kinds of relationships and yeah. <laughs> people to offer different sorts of things for your own personal development. Exactly. Which brings us to Kelly <laughs> <laughs> and Alex and Kelly. And you can definitely see differences between Alex in her current relationship relationship with Kelly and that relationship dynamic and her relationship with Maggie, her first, you know, serious romantic relationship where she actually felt the things that one often feels in a romantic relationship, Mm. which speaks not only to, you know, season two issues in terms of like saying some things about relationships that are maybe not 
the best message. Mm. And in terms of Alex having learned from those experiences and this time around doing some things differently. And Kelly herself is a person who, you know, with her like mental health skills and like life skills generally in her experiences, she's in a pretty good place Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the same way that Alex is in a pretty good place emotionally. Well, yeah, relative to where she's been in prior seasons. There's there's been a lot of personal growth (laughs) for both of them. And Kelly is a person we see her several times offer a nice perspective in contrast (laughs) to what Alex is thinking. Like, for instance, Mm -hmm. what if my baby flings themselves? into a electrical socket <laughs> and Kelly's like uh are you listening is to that yourself? realistic yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah what if her baby is live wire anyway sorry, sorry. <laughs> a separate problem <laughs> and we see Kelly definitely try to coax Alex out of those like thought spirals yeah those spirals and those anxieties and maybe negative coping mechanisms. She can't do all the work for Alex, obviously. <laughs> she doesn't try either. Yeah. yeah. And she shouldn't, you know, and she's not a therapist for her either. But she is a nice addition to Alex's support system, along with Jean, Cara and Eliza. Well, and also to just talking because we did address kind of, you know, the show and the show's choices and messaging. The creative team was very conscious of wanting Kelly to be a character that was very different than Maggie so that you weren't constantly like thinking about that. Mm -hmm. And for Alex's purposes to really show like that she's in a different place in her life. And as you grow and have new experiences, like different people will mesh with you at different points. Mm -hmm. And You know, taking that idea more broadly that different relationships either work or don't work for you because of where you are in your life at various points. One of the other kind of interesting things to go back to season two and look at is how it pushes both Carr and Alex to grow in this area of navigating new kinds of relationships and why that is a challenge at various points along the way. And the reason for that is that most facets of our behavior that are social, where we're interacting with other people, tend to follow a script of some sort. Mm. There's a predictable pattern of a give and take that everybody intuitively knows from being raised in that culture or immersed in that culture if it's not one that you come to like as a baby. (laughs) And it cues us into how we should act and what we should do in what order and that kind of thing. And Kara and Alex both in season two are coming into this environment where the script is being flipped on them, if you will, because Kara has been trying to adapt to earth norms for dating since she was a middle schooler and Mm -hmm. has struggled constantly because of this issue with trying to figure out how to be honest and authentic but also protect herself and her family. And she's never been good at finding that balance. And now she's met someone who she doesn't have to lie to. And also who knows those facets of her own culture and understanding of what romance is and how you go about it. And so... There's something familiar there to her for the first time that she's never had. And so she kind of just like follows it like a cat (laughs) with a laser pointer. Um, (laughs) She's like, I get this. Let's go. She literally calls him a stray cat. (laughs) She does. That's very true. And so, you know, there's that level of comfort that she's never had before. And that's a big factor in why she becomes as attached as quickly as she does. Mm -hmm. Whereas Alex... On the flip side, Alex, who really likes understanding the rules of systems and being able to follow the rules and do things correctly, (laughs) is now in this new subculture where she does not know any of the rules. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, I get this. Like, it fits. But on the other hand, it's also like a whole new set of ways that things could go Mm -hmm. wrong. 
yeah, like as happens, you know, yeah. when Maggie rejects her th- that first time. Yeah, because, you know, she thought she was doing the things in the right order based on the signals mm. that she got. And then Maggie was like, JK, actually, this is not the right thing to do. <laughs> and it threw her for a loop. And then, yeah. Yeah. And so you were talking about this concept of like scripts, mm-hmm. which ties in quite neatly to this idea of narrative, where scripts are sort of like the things you're supposed to do outwardly and like how things are supposed to flow externally, whereas a narrative is you tracking your own position psychologically, like in the world, for instance, with Kara, like I am Supergirl and I can't have certain kinds of relationships. And Alex and being like, I have to be (laughs) perfect all of the time. And it's interesting because Alex had adjusted her own like internal narrative of how her life is going to go by cutting out that aspect like okay so this isn't an option for me i'm not going to have a romantic relationship because i'm not into that and here with maggie that challenges that narrative and is like Mm. oh i guess maybe i can have this too and then you know when things fall through it feels worse the same way that we talked about with Kara. like Mm -hmm. when she lost manel it feels even worse because it was something that they didn't think they could have then they got it And then they lost it again. And that feels like a confirmation. Oh, like they have to go through another mourning process (laughs) of like, this isn't something for me. And that it's like some cosmic sign that like Mm. you're not allowed because you like it failed for whatever reason. Well, cosmic really applies to Kara very well. (laughs) Well, but Alex even says that, too. What does she say? She says, it feels like the universe is smacking me down when I'm happy. Mm, That's good. Yeah. With Alex, you know, my first reaction was like, oh, it's kind of not like a cosmic thing for her because she takes everything so personally, like like it's her mm-hmm. her doing. But also it's not like we yeah. talked about, like she does think that she doesn't actually have the power to make those effects on the world. She doesn't have that like internal locus of control the same way. But well, and then the other thing that's kind of interesting, which we hadn't thought about in this context until we were prepping this episode, once both Kara and Alex go through these really personally traumatic losses of of potential romantic future they end up going home to midvale and to circle back to us racking our brains about like characters who would have been role models to these main characters as far as how you have romantic relationships mm. it was interesting to think about you know they're going home because that's a source of comfort but also their mom has lived through this too yeah you know eliza lost jeremiah when they were teenagers and they saw her get through that mm. so there's also that little kind of subconscious like I'm here because I want to be comforted in like a child way, but also Mm -hmm. the like, I'm here because you might give me some hope. (laughs) Like, um. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it it ties into one of the like sort of core ideas that is woven into Supergirl, the TV show, which is that like you can survive romantic loss and be okay. So you can survive loss generally and also specifically romantic loss like you will be okay if you build a foundation for yourself of loved ones and family members Mm. yeah and also jean who similarly has lost you know his his wife and his kids and has managed to rebuild in part because car and alex kind of kept persistently nudging him to do so Mm -hmm. which is why it's a little bit funny then in season three when cara is kind of grieving jean's like we need to leave her alone and alex is like uh no (laughs) we do not (laughs) yeah and it's interesting with jean and also eliza in them as these sort of mentor figures who had 
romantic partners in the past and then lost them and were then like okay like not okay but like they yeah were able to grieve and to move on and find joy still and also like learn things from those relationships and through that we see this idea of like end game romances challenged a little bit in in the sense that mm. a relationship doesn't have to be for forever to have been valuable yeah or to have had worth Obviously, you know, Jean's whole family is quite important to him, you know, and we see him through those connections that he used to have impart wisdom, like with Manel in season three, when he talks about how he would share his thoughts every day with his wife at the end of the day. Mm. Those relationships still live on within Jean. And even with Eliza, Jeremiah, who is a complicated figure in Alex and Cara's life, Eliza, when she's giving the eulogy at his funeral, talks about how despite everything that happened, Jeremiah's love was real and there there mm-hmm. was worth there in that relationship both between them and Jeremiah as Alex and Carr's father mm. and kind of related to this idea of like relationships maybe not being the thing that you expect it to be but still having worth we have the concept of like heterosexual heteroromantic relationships being sometimes a kind of representation, important and positive representation, for instance, with like interracial relationships Mm -hmm. and trans people or a trans person being in a relationship and even certain storytelling and and messages within, you know, like white straight relationships can have a kind of value. For instance, obviously, we have Nia, who we see navigate a heterosexual relationship with Brainy. And that very much ties into who she is as a trans woman living in the world and as an alien. In terms of sense of self-worth, she has that storyline with Yvette, her roommate, who is also a trans woman. And the show addresses directly like the fear that trans people have justifiably that like they won't get to have love, mm-hmm. won't get to have that like sort of normal dating life due to the threat of violence or the threat of rejection. Yeah. Even mm-hmm. as we see, you know, obviously Yvette deals with the catfisher physically attacking her. And Nia deals with issues with self-worth in relation to Brainy and and wanting that as validation for who she is. And the show gives us a sort of similar message in terms of hope and resiliency as they present with Kara, where for these characters, it's always going to be in like different ways harder yeah. for them to navigate like a love life and, and seeking that kind of relationship. And also in general, having a happy fulfilling life. But they argue that one should try to find happiness anyway. And they argue that the act of trying to find that happiness is an extremely brave thing to do. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of the Brainy and Nia relationship, we have, you know, Brainy. <laughs> yes. His character offers an interesting perspective in terms of a person who could be read as neurodivergent and his relationship with a person who is neurotypical. And we see Brainy navigate the difficulties that come along with that incongruence, that difference between them where he has certain traits like locking on to an idea and then pursuing it excessively, like finding out that Nia likes poetry and then reading 100,000 poems (laughs) or finding out she likes food and giving her a ton of food (laughs) all the time. And that also ties into Brainy's character arc generally and him attempting to navigate like 21st century Earth life Mm. and him understanding people and relating to people in a way that is fulfilling emotionally. Another kind of relationship that we see, both in terms of 
like subtext and like explicitly a interracial relationship. We have James and Lena and James generally in his romantic relationships. Mm. James and his relationships explores themes quite relevant to his personal arc and growth as a character as well, where he often has these morality-based conflicts, like with Kara and Lena in particular, mm. which is interesting in terms of gender stereotypes, because typically, like as we see with Kara and Monel, often in a heterosexual relationship portrayed in media, we see the woman in the relationship become the check on the guy in terms of morality and like encouraging them to become better people or like do the right thing. Mm -hmm. James has been in a very positive way for Kara, like a check on when she maybe goes too far with mm -hmm. her her lawlessness, her, her tendency <laughs> to to go off script in terms of the like the justice system as Supergirl and, and certain mm -hmm. things related to that. And then with Lena, obviously, they had a big conflict, which ultimately probably changed James more than it changed Lena because he ended up being a bit more sympathetic and in some ways going too far with that mm. to other perspectives, such as with the Agents of Liberty. Well, and with Lena collaborating with government organizations with some of her research mm -hmm. could have been a potential threat to people. Right. Well, he, they ended up breaking up because of that. Well, but still, but he was still trying to be that advocate for that underrepresented position and that voice in her ear and say like, hey, this isn't a good idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> and another way that his romantic relationships interact with his personal arc is in his sense of being special too, kind of like Alex mm. with Kara and having his own kind of power and, and ability to make positive change and him dating women who are on their own very powerful mm -hmm. and exploring some conflicts with that. Yeah, it came up obviously the most with Lena because he dated her the longest on screen. But you had even early on the conflict with General Lane kind of accusing James of chasing after people who were like bigger and more like high powered than him, both with his connection to the supers and also to Lucy. There's definitely a little bit of that in play with him and Kara. Mm. And then also with, with Lena, especially when she starts trying to like pull strings to get him out of trouble and do different things, he gets very like, no, I need to do this myself because he knows people sometimes think of it that way and that he's kind of hmm. hanging on and benefiting from the power that the other people in his life have. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting, too, in combination with the story that he reveals to Lena about his interaction with the police as a little kid and how that made him feel very powerless. And then subsequently mm -hmm. what we learn about how he was bullied and then stuffed in a coffin mm -hmm. as a kid, like that he has these issues around perceptions of himself as being empowered and having power. Yeah. Well, James is a character in his romantic relationships. There's this element of exploration of the dynamics related to him as a man and mm -hmm. him as a black man. Yeah. And expectations for him <laughs> and who he's supposed to be. And him trying to go against that and maybe coming up with conflict <laughs> with the characters that he has romantic entanglements with. And last but not least, we have Mr. Winshot. Junior. <laughs> Junior, yes. As a character who is a white straight guy. So it'd be reasonable to expect him not to embody any kind of specific like underrepresented story. Hmm. But through his story, we see explored a lot of mental health themes. Yeah. And in specifically his romantic relationship dynamics and a lot of it isn't handled great and it's kind of subtextual yeah because it is not handled explicitly but when goes through two major relationships where he is not 
like valued appropriately. Mm. <laughs> First, we have Siobhan in season one, who was quite mean generally and, and cruel to him specifically from day one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and did not soften really even when they were dating and then turned into a villain. So like it <laughs> wasn't great for when speaking of people who should feel like the universe is against them. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then in season two, he dated Lyra who mysteriously vanished. <laughs> well, who vanished, but first used him to commit a crime and frame him for it. And then mm in a way that the show does not normally do, and this was part of the problem of season two, went through a lot of very, like, psychotic female romantic partner stereotypes towards the end mm. that felt very, like, they didn't know what they wanted to do with the character and someone right. took a shortcut in a not-so-great way. Yeah. For instance, let's take the time that James didn't want Lyra to be on their, like, little superhero squad team. Yeah. <laughs> and Lyra, like, smashed stuff in anger and was a jerk to win just trying to speak to her. Mm -hmm. Well, and in public, too. It was very much like, a you know, an abusive partner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was never explicitly addressed. And in some ways, it's like, oh, we don't usually see a dynamic like that where the guy is the one who is vulnerable, who is being treated poorly on screen. But also the show didn't, like, do anything with that in a positive way. Well, in an intentional messaging way. But then we also do see when develop where he has, like, a nicer, like, a healthy, really peaceful, <laughs> healthy relationship in the future. And on a character level, it makes a lot of sense for him concerning his abandonment as a kid when his father was taken off to prison and his mother never showed up again. And Wynn's fear that he is going to become like his father, who mm. was, you know, yeah. a terrible person. And then like the foster families that he was in, which he spoke briefly about with Alex, we know that there was an element of them keeping score. Like, we do this for you. Therefore, you know. You owe us something. You owe us. <laughs> you have to work for the things that you are given. And Wynn gets this idea in his head that he doesn't innately deserve things. Mm. And so it makes sense that he would enter not having processed those things and going back to this idea that like it's often beneficial to have other kind of positive experiences and relationships surrounding you as you enter a romantic relationship when gets into these relationships with two women who mistreat him and it seems like he doesn't you know recognize his worth enough to not tolerate that and to seek something else for him not until you know he goes through his arc through the seasons and goes to the future and meets somebody new. Having grown throughout the years and finally coming to a place, which he talked about in season three, of feeling like, you know, maybe he can have good things the same way that the other characters are like, maybe I can have not a normal life, but a happy life. Mm. So we've gone through many of the different romantic relationships on the show and discussed how they relate to a character's personal journey and how they interact with not only their own growth, but also their ideas of relationships in general. And Supergirl as a show is pretty good, I think, especially through actually their handling of Kara, Lena, and William, of demonstrating that romantic relationships aren't necessarily a separate like psychological thing in terms of your emotional needs. They actually mm -hmm. are very interconnected to your personal emotional like arc of your life and how you perceive like intimate different kinds of relationships generally like with your parents or your siblings or your friends. Yeah. And that level of interconnectedness goes back to the core theme of the show, which is this idea of stronger together 
you need the support of all these different kinds of people in order to have a balanced life, a life that lets you kind of reach your potential. Mm -hmm. And so there's the romance, but there's also the thing that's been present since the beginning, which is this idea of, of family and that family is what you make it. It's not necessarily just the people you're born with, which is Kara's whole revelation in season mm -hmm. one. Yeah. And that's also interesting to consider in light of the fact that they did add so many more queer stories as the show progressed and as it moved away from CBS, where they were actively discouraged from doing that. Hmm. Because Greg Berlanti, who is the creator of the show, talked early on when the show was coming into being about how much he loved the superhero genre and really related to that idea of struggling to be open and authentic about who you are because... He grew up in a period like I did, too, where there wasn't publicly available representative media for for those kinds of stories. And so mm -hmm. that's why you see so many superhero stories that are parallels to that. It's people expressing those ideas. And the other thing that's important there is that found family actually is a really important component of queer narratives that I think has gotten lost a bit mm -hmm. as things like marriage equality have past and people are more fixated on those romantic relationships in a very stereotypical media-driven way. Mm -hmm. Well, especially through fandom culture tying into activism and mm. how ship-focused fandom culture is generally. Yes. It all ties together because the best way to market media like TV and film is to play up the romances and get people like on a team mm. the way you would be for like sports. Yeah. Or like marketing in yeah, general. <laughs> exactly. It's something easy and it draws people in very quickly. But within queer storytelling, historically, the found family part of it has always been a huge component because it's not a part of yourself that you share necessarily with other members of your blood family. And mm. so part of the experience of coming out and being authentic in who you are is also finding other people who get you and finding a support network that can be there for you when your family doesn't get it or when they reject you mm -hmm. or, you know, helping you to reach your your potential at work if there's a problem or stuff like that. Like Maggie, having practice finding a family. Yeah. And then even within that, the choice to use like adoption as a way of explaining how mm. families fit together is also a component of queer stories because most of the time you can't bring biological children into that <laughs> particular setup. And so it's cool that the show still continues to explore all of these things on an explicit level mm -hmm. in a way that I don't know necessarily that like younger viewers in particular fully grasp that that's still kind of new. Mm. But also that it is a continuation of a lot of things that were going on within fan culture more so than in mainstream media 20, 30 years ago because there was no mainstream media to do it. Mm. Yeah, that perspective, along with like the feminist elements and, and the concept generally, like you talked about, of Stronger Together have mm -hmm. made Supergirl as a show and the way that Supergirl treats families and romantic relationships stand out and, and mm -hmm. subvert expectations in a really nice way. <laughs> Yeah, it's done, I think, more things than people realize that are somewhat unique within mm. the superhero media genre. Yeah. So we'll have to see what they have in store for season six. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So now that we have explored the concept of romantic relationships thematically as portrayed in the Supergirl TV show, let's have some fun with ships. We had you guys send us your favorite Valentine's Day card lines or write them yourselves to use in a game. And so the way this first game works is 
one of us will read out the Valentine's Day line, and the other person will come up with a Supergirl character who is saying it and who they are saying it to. <laughs> one of them is soliciting affection from the other. Is that the goal? <laughs> yes. <laughs> or, you know, you can come up with your own goal if there's <laughs> No, the whole, there's a the whole point plot. is romance. Romance. <laughs> This needs to be okay. adorable love stories waiting to this happen. This has to be cycles. adorable. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, the first one we have is from Tegan. Are you a programmer? I want to assy you to be my Valentine. Ha 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 ha. That is a programming language. So I love it. Um, that would be win. <gasps> and it would be preseason one win to Kara. Oh, <laughs> how sweet. And then Kara's like, oh, this uh, is such a fun friend Valentine's. <laughs> yep. Kara's like, I love you, friend. And friend. sad inside. Uh, <laughs> yes. Okay. So Tegan sent us a bunch. The next one is, are you a woman? Because I'm gay. Want to date? <laughs> okay. So this one is actually... Sarah Lance. <laughs> okay, that is a good answer. <laughs> and it's the next thing that she says to Alex after that scene in the crossover is over. <laughs> okay, perfect. This next one also from Tegan is roses are red, violets are blue. I think it'd be cool if it was just me and you. Um, Lucy to James. I like that because it's very straightforward and that feels very Lucy. And also a subtle, like, can you stop hanging out with Superman? <laughs> or later, Supergirl. Or Supergirl. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's great. The next one from Tegan. I must be dead because I want you to be my boo. Okay. This is Indigo to Nan. <laughs> In- I hate you so After very she- much. <laughs> After she has been ripped apart by Jean in the finale, and she doesn't know that Nan has only been lobotomized and cannot join her in the afterlife just yet. Okay, that's horrifying on so many levels. Please know my backup curse thought was Jeremiah to Eliza. Oh, no. And Eliza like reads it and then like puts it down and, and doesn't. <laughs> She's respond. like, I know. It's, it's like a horrible dad joke gone wrong. Like, <laughs> it's fair. All right. The next one from Tegan is, "Will you be the cookies to my cream?" Um. Well, obviously, Kara has to be one of the people involved because this is a food That's analogy. Fair. That's fair. Um, that is a good rule. Kara to James. <gasps> Wow. That's the appropriate amount of cute. Since his entire strategy of flirting with her before they go on their one not date is to constantly shower her with comfort food. (laughs) So we have a few other ones that came from Layla of Paper. And the first one is, you stole a pizza, my heart. Wow. That is one of the lines from one of Brainy's poems to (laughs) Nia, knowing that she loves food and also poetry. I love it. He realizes also that she likes... Bad puns. Paper mache. And he makes a Valentine's art project of pizza that has You Stole a Pizza My Heart written on it. I love it. That's amazing. <laughs> this next one from Layla is, are you the circus? Because my heart wants to run away with you. Okay. I just had the worst ridiculous thought and that that was Lena and Andrea. <laughs> it just fits with the my heart will go on. I don't know why. Titanic. Here are we you are. The circus? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> going to take you far away from this place. <laughs> there it is. That's my answer and I'm sticking to it. Uh- <laughs> I like it. I like it. It's good. All right. This next one also from Layla. I love hanging with your cat and you're cool too. Okay. This one is a non-romantic one. 
No, it that's is not allowed. But you'll like it. <laughs> okay, that's not. <laughs> again, all right. You don't get to just break the rules, Cycles. I make the rules, like so I guess I can. <laughs> you, you're not God. No. <laughs> I'm going to say it anyway. Okay. All right. <laughs> you can't that stop me. That is the most Kara thing. <laughs> okay. Listen, you'll you'll Go like ahead. it. It's Go okay. Ahead. It's William to Alex, <laughs> who he thinks has a cat, trying to like get Alex to like him so that she'll approve of his relationship with Kara. Interesting take. Also funny. Because Cara had that lie about having a cat. The lie about the cat. Yes. Yes, exactly. All right. Acceptable. This one from Layla is, I love you as much as Amanda Gorman loves poetry. Oh, my goodness. That would be Monel to Cara because he did have an intellectual (laughs) awakening about like Shakespeare and other things. So he (laughs) might be trying to like show off mm. that he knows earth culture and also That's good cara <laughs> yeah and he like knows her interests and's like a little bit clunky like him trying to write poetry would be great oh my god yes actually it would <laughs> and then our last one which is from an anonymous listener even if there was no gravity left on earth i'd still fall for you hmm this one is Kelly to Alex trying to lighten the mood after she fell oh, off the roof. No. <laughs> oh, okay. That's terrible, but also acceptable. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Wow. Okay. Thank you guys for submitting your excellent, beautiful Valentine's Day lines yeah. for us to enjoy. And also, if you sent in a Supergirl-specific Valentine, check out our Instagram or our Tumblr blog for a post for you guys. All right. And then we have a second game, which is Mm -hmm. also kind of based on some like writing prompt memes that circulate and something that we occasionally have done for fun, Mm -hmm. Um, looking at (laughs) the different genre tags that come up on um, Archive of Our Own and going, huh, what could we make out of this horrible (laughs) The creation. Uh, yes, or the Frankenstein of different tropes. Um, and also our love of like AU concepts and, and movies and being like, who would be, you know, Hamilton and <laughs> <That's> <laughs> et cetera. not a conversation we've ever had. Uh. <laughs> so the premise of this game is one of us presents a description of a romantic plot and the other one has to fill in the two characters or more <laughs> that are <laughs> within the story. So my prompt for you, who is the cleaning person for a high security government lab and who is the sea creature in their captivity that they fall in love with? Oh, my God. That's that movie, right? With the This fish is man? the plot of The Shape of Water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my good Lord. Manel is the, the person who cleans in the lab. And um, he falls in love with Leslie Willis, who is a metahuman. The <laughs> it's a metahuman sea creature. Who is a sea creature. She's live water. <laughs> oh, my God. That's terrible. <laughs> Perfect, but also terrible. Okay. Um, Coming at you live and water. <laughs> <laughs> Dear God. I appreciate Manel as, like, the cleaning person <laughs> in but a secret also, security. Like, like, he, as we saw in canon, he's, like, chill with all the different aliens. Like, there's the mm-hmm. one girl who hits on him, and he's like, oh, she has gills. So, so you're, like, okay, you're, like, the most realistic person person who would date someone who was sea creature like is Manal. Definitely, yes. All right. I get your logic. <laughs> <laughs> He'd 100% be open to that. He is chill with all species. Um, I, yeah, I got it. I don't know why <laughs> Leslie Willis was the person you chose for the sea creature. It just but... <laughs> made some more sense than anyone else. I don't know. All right. All right. I like it. I like it. So for my AU, this is a high school flashback setting. Mm, 
Okay. Who is the kind of overlooked, goofy kid? And who is the friend that they have a crush on, but who secretly has a gay crush on someone else? Mm, Okay. Then they finally hang out and the first character thinks this is the moment. And then the second character is like, hey, can you help me with this big problem? I am a little bit gay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Can I also choose the person they have a gay crush on? Yes. James is the overlooked character. Alex is the person they have a crush on. And Maggie is the person that Alex has a crush on. That is actually excellent. I love it. Um, (laughs) Number one, the hilariousness of like scrawny James Mm -hmm. thinking that Alex is like this cool popular girl who's amazing. And (laughs) number two, that Alex definitely has a crush on this random other girl and she hasn't told anyone about it. And she needs James for moral support to woo this (laughs) prospective young lady. Excellent. Um, (laughs) Okay. The next prompt that I have for you, Vivi, is... Uh (laughs) <laughs> who is the criminal mastermind and the person trying to catch them through the taunting but also flirty letters that they send? Ha. Lillian and Kat. <sighs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Can Kat also be like, like they're trying to catch them through reporting? Yeah, like that would 100% <laughs> make sense. Kat oh, is trying great. to do this investigative deep dive and Lillian keeps sending like taunting things that tease at who she really is <laughs> to see if Kat can figure it out because she's like, you're smart and I like you, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love this dynamic. There it it's is. wonderful. It's a super <laughs> hilariously antagonistic, but like a little bit fun. Flirty, yes. flirty vibe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, your turn. So person number one has been single for a really long time and they're lonely. And then they meet person number two who is absolutely perfect and does everything right. And they fall in love and get married only for person number one to find out that person number two has been lying to them about who they are the entire time. Who they are and who they are is not specific. Mm-hmm. The first person is Wynn. Okay. And the person that is perfect in every way but has a secret, is Superman. (laughs) Clark. Okay, continue. And the secret is, of course, that Clark is an awesome alien with superpowers. But we knew that. Not in this world. (laughs) Not on this planet. (laughs) Not on this planet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, continue. Wait, wait. Tell me more. Clark kept it as a secret. Clark kept it a secret, but why? Well, um, this is a darker AU where he's not the first alien and aliens are persecuted. And he was afraid that when knowing would result in both he and when being taken off to Cadmus. Excellent. I mean, no, that's terrible, but that's a good story. (laughs) It made a very dark, dramatic turn. It does. And it's also it weirdly it feels like an old school, like gay love story anyway, because it's like you can't tell them that you're married Mm, because marriage wasn't a thing. (laughs) The premise is rivals to lovers. Okay. Hockey sports teams. Character A is the star player of the team. Character B with the Philadelphia hockey team is Gritty. Who what? is the star and who is under the suit? <laughs> oh, 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 okay. So, like, it's the person who is the mascot. It's not, like, literally, like, the, the weird... It's not Gritty, personally. Physiological manifestation of Gritty. <laughs> it is the person who is underneath the Gritty skin. <laughs> Thank you for saying that in the creepiest way possible. You're um, welcome. Okay. So one person is a famous player on the hockey team and the other person is the mascot. Mm-hmm. Rival teams, though. 
Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> and it's a beautiful love story because they never see your face. It's wow. Like the, it's like a Phantom of the Opera kind of thing, but with sports. They really fall for Gritty's eyes. <laughs> Gritty's very <laughs> googly eyes. <laughs> um, so the hockey player is uh, Rain because she's very competitive and okay. uh, strong and determined. <laughs> strong and a star. <laughs> and she wants to be the one in charge of things. So she's definitely the leader of the team. Okay. All right. That makes and, sense. I mean, she was like the, the boss world killer. So that makes sense. Um, maybe the team is called the world killers. Oh, my God. The team there is the is. world killers. The team is the world killers. They're a fictional <laughs> team. And the the person under the mascot is Eve Tessmacher. Oh, my God. <laughs> Is Eve like undercover, like trying to infiltrate? <laughs> I mean, no, I just thought of that because Eve mentions in some episode that she like worked in an amusement park as a teenager. And I was like, well, I mean, she could do a lot of Eve that. Eve has a lot of odd jobs. <laughs> she does. Well, she did also say like she lost her parents at a young age. They have a lot in common. Okay. Oh, okay. Her and Gritty? No, <laughs> no definitely. Definitely not Gritty. Um, she and Rain, they, she just feels a connection. It's there. All right. Prompt me. Person number one is a detective, and they are very <laughs> accomplished and skilled at what they do. And person number two is their partner's estranged sibling who they met once and had an instant connection to. Okay. The successful detective is Jean. Okay. And his partner, which I thought would be a fun dynamic, is Haley. Nice. <laughs> they actually work together in this. All right. And her sister is, of course, Megan. Interesting. I like it. Nice mm -hmm. twist. Well played. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> My final prompt for you, Vivi, is 18th century. Okay. The resourceful adult child of the governor an honorable <laughs> this was on my potential list also an okay, honorable blacksmith <laughs> and the worst pirate you've ever heard of <laughs> ot3 ot3 go. oh my god you did this for so many reasons that are fabulous <laughs> and the plot is you know the pirate I, and the blacksmith yeah. have to rescue the governor's kid from the black pearl so just keep that in mind <laughs> that's so specific <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Lena is obviously the resourceful and enterprising mm -hmm. child of the governor who has been right. kidnapped, but may also power her way out of some of those situations through smooth mm -hmm. talking and or the point of a gun by threatening people. <laughs> um, fair, fair. <laughs> and let's see, our hardworking blacksmith is James Olson. Excellent. Because he's also got like the muscle, but he's very forthright and wants to do the right thing all of the time. And mm. he will put in that effort for those people that he loves in like a principled way. Mm -hmm. And our best pirate that you've never heard of is Jack Sphere. Um, <laughs> number one, because of, of course, Jack. And we know Lena's lifelong interest in characters with the name Jack. Um, <laughs> but also because it adds like that love triangle element, but not that was present in the films. Because mm. there's like that attraction to both of the dudes. But then they have this like healthy respect for each other. And they like come to an understanding and work out like an agreement on how they're all going to share. <laughs> and be happy together so <laughs> what a what a happy peaceful it's fine <laughs> it's a happy peaceful story yes. full of death and crime 
<gasps> but James is also the guardian and like his suit is made out of metal and the character is oh, a blacksmith. It's he perfect. forges he his makes his own suit. Suit with there as a blacksmith. There wow. it is. Amazing. Wow. Okay. <laughs> All right. And my final one for you, Cycles, is character number one mm-hmm. is a successful businesswoman with one young daughter. And she sends her child away to summer camp. And while there, her child befriends this other child who's like, wait, this is weird. We have the same birthday. And then they discover that person number two is this child's parent who is a owner of a giant vineyard and also <laughs> like weirdly lonely. And there's this deep, tragic backstory that they don't talk about. And the kids just want to know why. And they realize that person A and person B maybe need to be together in their lives again. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to do the one that you definitely knew that I was going to do, but <laughs> I'm going to switch maybe the order you expected, okay. which is Eliza is the vineyard owner <laughs> and the other parent is Jean and the kids are Alex and Cara. Wait, who lives with Eliza and who lives with Jean? Alex lives with Jean and Eliza lives with Cara. Ooh, interesting. I have a surprise last one. <gasps> Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> this one, you can gender bend if you would like. Ooh. Change the character's gender. Okay. Because it is important that this remains a lesbian period piece prestige drama. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> the setting is a beach. <laughs> and there is def- there has to be some sort of uncomfortable like power dynamic involved. That oh, is your premise. Okay. <laughs> so they're on a beach. They're, they're people who are presumably attracted to each other. Mm-hmm. And there's a weird power dynamic. Yes. And the tone is prestige drama. Prestige drama. So like high angst. High basically. angst. Okay. Yes. Um, Longing looks. Periods of silence. Longing looks. Periods of silence. Deep misunderstanding at different <laughs> times. Mm-hmm. Um. Mm-hmm. John Jones and Manchester Black because uh, (laughs) there's a lot of tension in that relationship because there's like Jean has this desire to connect and Manchester's like kind of here for it but he's also torn because he's like determined to do anything to get what he wants and that means Mm. he's gonna end up hurting Jean and like wow there's also the age difference thing and Mm. you know it'll just it's messy on so many levels it'll be perfect perfect (laughs) high drama Manchester is grieving after the loss of her ex. <laughs> oh, right. Yes, we're gender we're gender bending. We're gender bending. It's important that it's a lesbian story. It is. <laughs> is it specifically important that it's lesbians and not gay men? Yes. Because it's the 1800s. Jean- uh. <laughs> yes. Jane Jones. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh. And woman Chester Black. <laughs> oh my god, no. So good. So good. I hate uh, it. Well, I'm so glad that we played this game, baby. Yeah. <laughs> this was a beautiful <laughs> the highlight of my week. <laughs> activity. Thank you. That was torture in a fun way, I guess. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Feel free to prompt each other terrible things. <laughs> <laughs> so that wraps up our episode. And as promised, Vivi and I are going to finally reveal our favorite Supergirl ships. Ah. <gasps> What? I'm so unprepared. <laughs> you didn't tell me this. Deception. <laughs> Fr- friendship over. Friendship over. <laughs> Cancelled. <laughs> what is your favorite Supergirl ship? My favorite ship is Kara's pod. 
And (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what? Um, And the reason for this is actually there's a specific scene that I like Mm -hmm. in season one where she is being attacked by everyone at the DEO when they're under Myriad. And she actually manages to run over to the pod and turn Mm -hmm. it on and use the Vectrum, the blasters to knock everyone over without hurting them. Yeah. A moment of resourcefulness. So wait. What? Was that not the answer I was supposed to give? No, that is exactly correct. Oh, well, in that case, what I guess is your favorite literal ship? (laughs) My favorite ship is actually enemies to star-crossed lovers. It is Kara's pod and Fort Ross. There's just (laughs) a certain magnetism. And an attraction from the very beginning. (laughs) That is uncalled for. You know, they spent all that time together in the Phantom Zone. And then when the pod escaped, Fort Ra's got its freedom, too. So they're they're linked in that way. Wow. That is um, that is an intense relationship between the prison and the pod. Mm -hmm. Both prisons in, in, in some ways. Yeah, Kara sure did have a lot of feelings about being trapped in the bleakness of space. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I- But also, both of these ships saved lives <laughs> because <laughs> Fort Ross was not on Krypton when it died, and neither was <laughs> the pod. Fair. Uh, so you're welcome, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope that was that uh, worth the wait. Mm-hmm. I'm sure <laughs> you guess. guys were really actually all wondering. We will be back soon with another Supergirl's Attic episode. If you guys have any questions or comments, please send them to us at Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram at Supergirl's Attic. And thanks for listening.